to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I went to a, a small college in New Jersey called Stockton State, and now it's called Richard Stockton University. And now, one year costs what my whole four-year degree cost back in the early 80s. And the funny thing is, every Thursday night, we would go out to party, and there's bars like the Stockton Pub, the the Delrados, the Arrowhead Pub, and there was one song that always pulled us out on the dance floor. Everybody danced. Well, down the road, a band, I mean, a bar opened called Blondie's, and it was in a place called Pleasantville, which was in, still in the middle of nowhere, but they got the best bands, and they had just, and back then, New Wave was just blowing up, and that, that's, their whole sound was unbelievable. And I remember my guest today, his band played there and I remember we got our tickets and we were you know we would were selective of who we go see but we remember we were always dancing to the music at the Stockton pub so we got our tickets and we showed up and they were wearing all black leather and they had cool hair and they kicked ass and that band was romantics and my guest today is Wally Palmer. How you doing Wally? I'm doing fine Steve yourself. I'm doing great man. I gotta tell you you pretty good. You've you've been around for a long time so you probably don't remember that that concert, but it was this place right near Atlantic City called Blondie's, and I'll tell you something, all us kids, man, we were just blown away, because you guys just kicked ass on stage. Well, you know what, see, listen, we were, um, you know, I'm, uh, whether or not, I, I kind of remember the venue, because it's just the, the actual name of it, and, uh, and, and, and the tie-in, actually, with, you know, with the band Blondie and stuff, and being on the East Coast, I mean, we played many different clubs, um, you know, in, you know, Jersey and, uh, uh, upstate New York, Long Island and stuff in Manhattan, you know, so we, uh, we kind of knew our way around, you know, let's say, and, um, uh, the particular show though, uh, maybe with enough process going on in my head, I might recall certain things from it, you know, uh, but, uh, uh, nonetheless, we're here, you know, and we're still here to talk about it, and that's a real good thing. Exactly. Now, you're from Detroit, and now, what yes. What got you into music? What what pulled you to the music? I read somewhere that you actually started taking guitar lessons, but you got rid of them because you saw someone on TV or you heard something that changed your uh, mind and you wanted to play, I think it was the Yardbirds, but what what did you, what got you into music as a kid? Um, listening to, um, growing up in Detroit, okay, let's go back to, you know, to stage one here. Growing up in Detroit, uh, whether it was, you know, whether listening to radio on a, on a, on a battery powered, uh, transistor radio, only had AM, you know, or FM, AM, AM radios had uh, some of them did, right? So we had a station called CKLW here, which was a very strong uh, um, station, which we would sometimes, as we went out to tour, you know, years later, real late at night, we were curious whether we could catch the Detroit Tiger baseball games on the radio as we as we traveled, like, you know, on the East Coast or in the Midwest. And sometimes we could pick up one station in the CKLW. Then it was also WKNR, another AM station. And um, listen to that. Coming home from school as a kid, there'd be dance shows on uh, that would show, 
obviously Motown bands would make guest appearances because they were all right here. And what better way to promote their records, you know, than hearing them on the radio and seeing them on, uh, you know, on TV at that point. And you'd also see, you know, all the white rock bands like, uh, uh, you know, I forgot to mention that the Temptations are one of my favorite bands anyways, you know, because of David Ruffin and uh, just the whole band. And, um, you know, and then you see like, you know, Mitch Ryder, Bob Seger, um, the, uh, Ted Nugent, the Amboy Dukes, uh, uh, the Rationals, all the white rock bands. And I probably skipped over a few to SRC, whatever. At any rate, uh, you'd see them on TV too. And then you'd also be able to see those rock, you know, the, you know, the bands playing at high schools and uh, different events around the city where kids could, you know, get in. There, there were clubs that would, you know, some of the kids that were about 18, whatever the drinking age was, you'd be able to go see them too. Bottom line, that, and then my brother bringing home 45s and stuff before, he, he, you know, to, uh, and I would always listen to what he brought home, and then, uh, you know, going on and on, and um, then on Sunday nights watching TV, they have this show called, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show, right? And there was a couple other ones, too, that had that, that would show bands, but after seeing uh, the Beatles on, I think that kind of really hit me right in the face of what I was, of what I would love to do as a kid. And then seeing them, I go, oh, wow, that guy's playing guitar a different way. He's left-handed. I go, ah, so am I for that matter. But I never, uh, so after I did go to take uh, guitar lessons, you know, I told them I'm left-handed. They go, oh, it doesn't matter. Left-handed guitars are too hard to come by. They cost more. Don't, you know, don't put your parents through this. You, you don't know how to play guitar anyway. So here, just learn this way. As it turns out, I played, uh, I still do play, you know, right-handed to this very day, still learning. I haven't learned yet, so practice makes perfect, right? In some cases, so. um, you know. So uh, you know, and there it goes from there. Then be, you know, I started dividing my time up be, between. Uh, uh, I was always interested in sports, also. So my summers, you know, were spent, um, you know, playing baseball and that, and uh, uh, whatever sports you would uh, played in grade school and then into high school and uh but always uh tried playing in different bands put bands together in grade school and high school i just kept on going till uh it came a time where I got a little bit older in my teens and uh i wasn't uh, everybody else got bigger and better at baseball and i was kind of stuck there and i go now doesn't look like this is going to work out for me so I started to pay more attention to music and uh, just happened to get in with the right group of guys, you know, down the road there after bouncing around different bands and doing different kinds of music. And uh, there, there came the guys from the Romantics and, you know, we uh, got together and uh, gave it a shot and it was a good honest shot and, uh, and, you know, four guys that were very dedicated and really wanted to do the same thing with a lot of help from other, uh, you know, from outside people that really enjoyed what we were doing. And we never gave up, and then, uh, and it worked. 
Now, how did you come up with the name, The Romantics? Was that a, a group project, or was that the record label, or what, how did you come up with that name? One of us came up with that. It could be a drummer, Jimmy, quite possibly. Um, you know, I'll, I, I can give him credit for it. I know I didn't, so... <laughs> You know, we had, we had a lot of different names we're tossing around, like like every band did. And you'd always go do your homework to see which band, if, if that name was taken already. And the Romantics, you know, you take a, it, it seemed to fit, you know, you look it up in the dictionary, what's the term mean? Romantic is very, you know, a very passionate, uh, uh, you know, person, passionate about what they do, passionate about your uh, love relationships, about every, everything they do. And then, and uh, we were at that point passionate about the music we were, you know, uh, we were coming up with and playing and uh, putting forth, in, you know, in, in front of the crowds that we were playing. Now, but of course, you never know how, how far it's going to go. But like I said before, we gave it a real good, honest shot. And we put a lot of, you know, work and sweat into it, a lot of rehearsal, everything. Now, do you think, do you think it helped you guys, you know, gaining the stage present, getting the gigs, because Detroit is a good music city. You know, there's so many music places, like, you know, Philadelphia you used to have a great music scene, and now it's really going downhill. But you go to other cities, and it's jumping. Did that help you guys starting out? Was it easier to get work for you in the beginning because Detroit had some popular bands and had a sound of its own? Uh, no, I can't say that because... The bands that were popular, the white rock bands, you know, the ones that I named before, and then branching out into eventually, you know, like the MC5 and the Stooges, uh, you know, and the, you know, and the Up, and God knows I'm forgetting a bunch of bands here too, but uh, those bands had already come and gone basically from uh, the mid-60s through the early 70s. So then the scene kind of died down a little bit, and there was a little bit of uh, different styles of music, but there were always clubs to go see bands, and uh, but a lot of the clubs wanted you to do what was current, and they wanted you to do two or three sets of that current music. So for the Romantics starting up in 77 to get hired somewhere, very limited places for us to play. We had to go play for pretty much for free in front of you know, our friends and that, uh, in places that held, I don't know, small corner bars, you know, 50 people, 75 people in there. But still being able to go in there and play, you know, the owners were, uh, the owners of the bars were cool about that. So it wasn't, that didn't give us a break. I mean, we, after we uh, um, put our first single out, we, you know, after the band had formed and we needed to, uh, um, found out that there was a, you know, like an underground scene here with all these bands um, playing around the country and stuff. And then we paid attention. The, the whole New York scene had blown up already by that time. You know, with the, uh, you know, with the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads. You know, everybody else in Mink Deville. Um, I'm going to forget a lot of bands from that era too. But you know, then the scene out in England, and there was a, you know. Uh, different magazines that would showcase that uh, that you couldn't even find on on your um, on your regular newsstand sometimes. So you had to dig all this stuff out. We knew there was an underground scene. We were we knew that in order to get noticed, we need to go in and, and uh, you know record. So that's what we did. Uh, we got our funds together, went in to record here, 
in Detroit and put out a single, Little White Lies, with I Can't Tell You Anything, and uh, I, that was the first, uh, first single for us. Got that out there, and we got noticed, you know, with... Um, after a while that uh, this guy's are pretty good you know a lot of people like the single and that and we kind of went on from there and started to get more and more recognition but uh, you know playing around Detroit we uh, very limited in what we could do so we had to really branch, you know branch out go out to the Midwest <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> Ohio was nearby so you know Cleveland Cincinnati Chicago was you know fairly close going out that way to uh, you know Milwaukee and and then eventually heading out to the East Coast which is where all the record labels were for us now it's too far for us to drive get in the van and drive a couple days to get to the West Coast so we really worked the East Coast now how did you land your first record deal um sending out demos we had different uh, labels coming out to see us after a while but we were approaching different labels um with the demos that we had uh, we had a single that was out on vinyl that we could give and then we did uh i think a six or eight song demo after that and we had songs you know that we could send to the record labels but the whole thing to get somebody from new york to come to detroit was it's like we made it easy for them we stuck our faces right in front of them so when we ended up going out to the east coast when the time was right and played manhattan played a lot of different clubs there you know you name it we played it um Maxis, kansas city uh cbgb's obviously Haraz, Goldfinger. Was there a place called Goldfingers? I don't know. I think so, yeah. There were so many clubs back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, eventually we got enough interest from a few different labels to come out and uh, see us. And they wanted us to do some demos for them. We went back and forth, and then the whole negotiating thing went as we kept on playing and uh, rehearsing, practicing, and writing. You know, prepping ourselves. We had, um, by the time we went to go record our first album, we had, oh, I don't know, 20 some odd songs under our belt that we had written. So, um, but then eventually the right deal came came about uh, for us, and it was with Nemper Records, uh, which was a custom label of um, uh, CBS Epic. Now, yeah. You, yeah. you recorded the first album, and that comes with what I like about you is off that. When you wrote that song, because, you know, the funny thing is, that song has, it's just a different sound. And it's, you know, because, you know, the bands were punkish or new wave back then. But that song, like, it song kicks ass. I mean, the guitars start off, there's a clapping, there's a harmonica. I mean, how did you guys assemble that song? Because the song is kicking and then the harmonica just adds to it. I mean, was that, did you think that would be your first single when you were recording the album? We had written already a good, Prior to that song, I would say we had written a good dozen songs, and uh, like I said, we had a couple demos, you know, that we had, and the song was written sometime in the early, um, late 78, I want to say, maybe early 79, you know, and, um, and like a lot of the songs, too, it just kept, you had the framework of it, which we did, you know, when we brought, um, song ideas uh, 
to the rehearsal hall and stuff. And, and song ideas eventually got played enough, rehearsed enough, and um, and changing along the way to make them better songs in most cases. And I would like to say them in all cases, right? But, um, so I, I mean, you have no idea until the song, until we got it uh, into the studio and pre-production played a part in it too because of, uh, I mean, there's versions of the song. I think there's something floating around that's, uh, that we have a version of that song. There's bits and pieces of it that had to be, we had to fine tune it. In other words, and that happened when the uh, when the producer came. Actually, when he came in to do pre-production, you know, he's picking out songs that he thinks will fit together on the album, which he did. And going from song song to song, you know, his input in there, um, helping structure, you know, take parts in, put parts in, take parts out, and. But you don't know till uh, you get into the studio and start start recording, and obviously that song had a certain magic to it, and it just and to this very day, you know. It's one of those songs that it, it does. It just spans generations. I mean, it's weird they say generations, but you know, from the eighties to nineties to two thousand to two thousand almost two thousand twenty, and. I think yeah. Think about that. That's longevity. Oh yeah. I mean, know? but it's it's one of those songs. That, as I said, when I was in college, when that song came on, everybody would dance, and it was one of those songs, and it was it was just an uplifting song. It was a good song. Now, how did you figure out in in your different songs who would sing? Because I know the drummer sang on that, but you sing, of course, the the big hit "Talking in Your Sleep." How did you figure out who would sing? Um, it was just. You know, us rehearsing and um, whoever had, I mean, whoever had an idea, I guess, for, uh, um, you know, to how to approach the song um, rhythmically or, uh, you know, singing and um, melody-wise and, you know, whatever, it just uh, it just happened. There wasn't any certain formula for it. Because each guy is a very capable singer on his own in, in this band. You know, we're fortunate to have, you know, that much talent going on here. Where everybody was, you know, good. And, and it shows because on the first couple of albums and even demos, you know, we had the, the songs were spread around, you know, um, uh, taking lead vocal now. Now, so it just worked out that way. Um, no certain, I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, that it was written on any paper that, yeah, this sounds like it will go good with uh, so and so singing or whatnot. It just, you know, they just kind of, uh, they just kind of happened. Now, the, also in that time, videos started taking a big part. I mean, how did you guys to come up with the all? leather outfits was that just something that there was an influence of another band that did that because it was a cool look and it was just something that you know people could see that more because of videos who came up with that idea well, if you ever saw pictures of us when we first started we always had some form of matching um you know uh, stage wear on you know uh, whether it be four orange suits from the Salvation Army and uh, 
Royal Oak, Michigan, you know, that we happen to spot walking past her, getting those altered to wear those for some shows, uh, to matching um, vinyl pants, which, uh, uh, you know, kind of uncomfortable, but still did the trick. Um, and eventually, when our budget went up a little bit, we could afford leather, and we got leather. That's funny. The old, the old. I remember the vinyl pants, the pleather, and it was so uncomfortable. Around here, well, you know, they're very hard, very hard to wear. I mean, the leather playing, you know, Asbury Park and and all the Jersey, you know, playing in Jersey clubs during the summer. You know, with everybody real hot and smoky and stuff, they wouldn't. They they were no walk in the park to wear either, but. Now, now, you know, what I uh, what I like about you is it becomes big, and then you know when you recorded "Talking in Your Sleep," that became really big. As you were going from, you know, because you had that album, then you came with the second one, and then "Talking in Your Sleep," I believe, came off your third. Were you starting to tour more? Were you getting out of just the East Coast and the Ohio because you had the record deal and you had a song that people recognized? Did you start to go other places? Well, yeah, I mean, once the album came out on Emperor, the official first album came out, and, uh, you know, and uh, what I like about you, the lead track hit the airwaves and stuff, uh, you know, then uh, we started to get a lot more attention. Our booking agency was based out of Detroit here. They put us on, you know, doing shows with, uh, they had on their roster uh, different bands like Ted Nugent, for instance, and we did shows with them, uh, uh, you know, with Ted, you know, opening, um, uh, and then a couple other bands that kind of lead me now from, that were on the booking agency, same agency, same agency, excuse me, Um, then the album comes out, uh, we're doing shows uh, like Jay Giles, Cheap Trick, um, uh, the Cars, um, the Ramones, a lot, a lot of shows with the Ramones too, uh, and so there you start going around the country more, right? You start getting offers around the country. Eventually, we get a call to go do American Bandstand. You know, we're on Bandstand, I think total three or four times, um, and. You know that's all filmed out on the West Coast. We had we had to eventually hit the West Coast, right? So uh, it, it just the more the more uh, the record got played. Obviously, the more we started to you know uh, to go nationwide and eventually international, which we didn't have any videos to go along with the with the first single at that point either. You know, for what I like about you, there was no, we never cut any videos for it up until the song started to really grab hold um, internationally, and in certain pockets it did better than others, and it was doing very well in the, kind of like the Netherlands, Germany, you know, that area, that pocket there, Um, and they contacted the They've always had shows where you could turn on a TV and there, or outlets, I should say, where they, um, where if you have videos, they would play it. Because I remember seeing videos when I was a kid of, you know, 
of the Beatles, the Who, uh, the Rolling Stones, you know, saw videos that, uh, as a promotional vehicle for the single. And so our singles, you know, smoking, heading up the charts um, over in, in the Netherlands and Holland, <clears throat> they have no video for us. They're playing videos on every other band, and, and they uh, and they say, "Listen, this thing has got a lot of strength underneath it. We need a promotional uh, video for it. Do you have anything? Because we don't know what the guys look like. So we got pictures, but you know." And they said, "Well, no, we don't." Said, "Okay, well, we're going to fix that." Gonna, so what they did, they sent over a crew. Uh, the Netherlands did. They sent over a crew, I don't know, three or four guys over to the West Coast. Um, we did a sound check. And I think it was at the Whiskey, and don't scold me if I say the wrong club. <laughs> but I believe it was there. We did a sound check. They um, came and filmed the sound check. Uh, we filmed um, a video for What I Like About You and When I Look In Your Eyes which would eventually be a follow-up seal to what I like. <clears throat> so they took that back with them. As soon as they did that, boom, top 10 over there. And this is well before, because there's no MTV yet in 1980 here, right? So there's no outlet for any, for any videos except for, I don't know, local shows or the Midnight Special didn't even show uh, videos, I don't think, because uh, you're playing on there, right? So you, you bandstand. The only way you're seen is if you're on, you know, some show like that, bandstand or solid gold, which I'm not even sure to my recollection if that was even out at that point yet. So you see what I'm saying here? That really helped out, you know, to to get that thing uh, going there, and eventually um, in in Australia too which got a hold of the video, that showed it there. You know, those countries, the United States of America was um, was very behind at that time for uh, uh, showing videos. No outlet, it's amazing too. Yeah, you think, I know, it is very amazing. Because then, well then MTV comes along and that coincides, you know, that, that coincides with making so many bands big. When you did Talking In Your Sleep, which was a big hit for you guys, uh, internationally and in America, yeah. Did, did they shape the video for you because they wanted a certain look? Because videos, you know, as you see, what I like about you, it's a, it's a, it's a jam video. You guys are playing, and I I love videos right. like that. But then these videos started becoming like, like there was always a story, like you know, you know, talking in your sleep. In themselves, right within the song. Yeah, yeah. and then, and you have the beautiful girl in the beginning of talking to sleep, and you guys are walking around these girls, and they have a few cutbacks to the band. But was that your idea for the video, or did they just say, here's what we're no. going to do, this is what you're going to do, this is going to work for you? The only thing that we really stressed was that no matter what kind of video we did, we would always try and do some form of performance piece in it, you know, within the video. And so for talking in your sleep, it was in, uh, I'm not going to start to search for for names, maybe it'll hit me further down in this conversation. But it was, uh, you know, the record label response. They told us that, I think we had a show or something, we are coming through Detroit to do a show, and they said, well, while you guys, when you guys land, uh, the next day we've got a video shoot set up for you. We have to get this video, you know, taped and cut. 
<clears throat> filmed, I should say, filmed and cut. So, you know, uh, they gave us a, I'm not sure how much of a notice they did, but they did. And uh, we, you know, landed, got the hotel room put, got our clothes together for what we, you know, we're going to wear for the shoot. Next morning, we come in there um, on location at a warehouse, and there were, I don't know, 60, 70 girls in um in the sleeping attire, I guess <laughs> is a good word for it. Yeah, you know, and there's us in our um, uh, snakeskin, uh, snakeskin suits, right? So, whatever. We start taping early in the morning, and there goes the video. And that video helped propel, uh, it helped push that song. It was a vehicle, you know, uh, uh, for that song, and uh, and it worked well, and it worked well internationally. Now the song. And that song was a big international hit. Now it becomes a big hit. Now, how does your career change then? What does do, do the more gigs come up? Do you do you play uh, bigger venues, or how did the romantic, you know, career change yeah, after uh, that big hit? Yeah. What you have to understand is that that in between, what I like about you and talking in your sleep, you're talking what I like about you, 1980. You're talking um, the recording of uh, Talking in Your Sleep and the album In Heat, which was 1983. So by the tail end of 1983, uh, Talking in Your Sleep was picked as, as a lead track for that album. So you're talking that gap between 81 and 82. Um, we had two albums out that didn't... Uh, the second album did not fare as well as the first one, and the third album did not fare as well as the second one, you know. And so, uh, come along for, uh, you know, for the, for, for the In Heat album in 1983, uh, there was a change in, in the lineup uh, with, within the band. You know, there's still myself and Jimmy, but then there's um, um, Cause Candler on, on guitar and bringing back um, Mike Skill in, into the fold. And uh, unfortunately, at that point, it was, uh, you know, a letting go of um, our bass player, Rich Cole, but that's just the way things go. Um, the, you know, the writing and formation of that album and it just worked uh you know as as it's you know it may not people may have wanted something a little bit more up tempo a little bit more rock orientated you know to lead the album off but uh you're not going to argue with success it was picked as the first single talking to sleep and it took off now, and there you go back on bandstand back on uh, you know uh, we, we go back to Europe to do uh, not even to play but to do promotional TV uh, you know television spots in like Germany France and um, other countries and then eventually out to Japan to do shows there and it just uh, with the help of that video and a good you know and a really good solid song catchy uh that helped take us into, you know, back into that level. So you get back to that level. I mean, you know, and you're, you're, you're doing great. And how are the gigs? Are the, are the fans 
you know, just loving you guys? I mean, what was it like with your live performances then? Because you said, you know, in the beginning, you guys were all hard workers, and you, 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 this is what you live for. Did you really step up to the bat when you started getting the bigger crowds? Well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> with that success, it just meant more shows. So, I mean, we were doing, I don't know how many shows. I'm going to guess, and people are going to bitch at me because I hit the wrong number. But we did, you know, a couple hundred shows a year, probably somewhere on the average, I think. And, and they were, I mean, we're opening for opening for the Kinks, for instance, on the, you know, on that tour. Um, opening once again for Cheap Trick, opening for maybe Jay Gowskin for the Cars, opening for them. These are all really big bands at that point. Opening for Adam Ant, opening for Rick Springfield. You know, we're doing pretty high, really high-profile shows, and um, uh, you know, and, and and we're the opening band. Uh, you know, we were. And and I'm going to say this in a in a good way. We were a headliner band, but we were our strongest um, spot for us was probably the Midwest, and you know we could headline bigger venues here in our hometown of Detroit. You know, so but we did headline shows around the country. It was uh, uh, and we and we did a lot of shows, and then internationally too. You know, we did a lot of stuff and. Uh, a lot of shows, a lot of television. We did, God knows, you're on uh, Solid Gold, American Bandstand, with the help of a dance remix on Talking in Your Sleep by a fellow named Jelly Bean Benitez, right? Who had done like Madonna and other people from that era. That catapulted Talking in Your Sleep into the R&B charts. And it was a really big song on the R&B charts. So then we get a call. We're doing shows. We know we got shows lined up on the West Coast. Get a call from the record label. While you guys are out there doing the shows that are lined up, uh, you're going to be doing um, Solid Gold, and you're also going to be on Soul Train. Okay, there you go. How about that one? That's, that's so amazing. I mean, it's just because you think Soul Train with a line dance and Don Cornelius, and you don't think of a, you know, a, a, a band, a rock band being on there. Yeah, well, I mean, we were one of the few. I'm sure Bowie was on there and stuff and other, you know, people too, but we were, on, I don't know, maybe probably one of the first few rock bands, you know, that were ever on that show. And it was, uh, it was great for us, you know. Now, your career... Great exposure. Yeah, I mean, it's a, and it brings you to a whole brand new market. Now, your your career's going great, and now, do you feel pressure to follow up when you get it, when you have such a big hit? Is there a pressure to follow up on your next album to sit there and, and match the success of that hit? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, everybody's expecting that and stuff. It's just um, our... Our career at that point, at the end, let's just say we, you know, we ran, you know, that tour ran itself through for a good, uh, well, Jesus, six to eight months, almost a year. So then, um, up touring to promote that album, and then um, um, our drummer Jimmy decided to leave the band at that point. Okay, so timing wise, not the best. Right. Not the best at all. 
and um, so we had to do a, so you know we we're out to do a follow-up for that but searching for someone to fill those shoes that had been there for um, oh god you know for, for almost 10 years you know it's not an easy thing to do so um uh, but we did have an album that we needed to turn into epic um, I mean to Emperor, part of epic EPA portrait associated labels just so I don't get yelled at again after people who hear this you know. <laughs> um, we had, you know we turned the album in different drummer and stuff and it, it didn't you know we had a single off it or two singles off it didn't do as well and um, so we went on from there. I mean, we did videos for you know for the album for the song called uh, "Test of Time," which was a single off that. And uh, I think one, I don't think we did another video for a different song off there. Yeah. Definitely did the one for "Test of Time," <laughs> and you know it, it went, it did what it did, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, obviously didn't do as well as talking in your sleep. So, decision making time. Now, you also were involved in a lawsuit which didn't let you record for a while? Well, yeah, because it was, you know, once you're in court and stuff, who do you, who do you go to once you have songs and stuff? Who wants to deal with you and your past um, you know, and your past recordings while you're in court. You know, you approach labels, they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, we can probably do some work, but why don't you guys get your, you know, get your legal things out of the way, get straightened up. Let's see where the cards fall at that point. Now, what do you, as, as you know, as a musician and, a, and you're a musician in your life, what's going through your mind at that point? Because you know you guys are good. You've had hits. It must be very frustrating that you, you really can't record new stuff. It's obvious that we needed to straighten out. You know, and I hate to say this, but, you know, things happen sometimes for a reason. And it was maybe that we weren't keeping, we didn't keep an eye or you know we didn't keep keep an eye on 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 what uh on maybe what we should have at that point too which was the business end of things and it got a little bit out of hand for us and we needed to get that sorted out which is why the whole thing ended up in court and after a few years um you know in the courtrooms and stuff um, it sorted itself out and um, we got our catalog of songs back in our hands, um, cut a publishing deal, and then on we go again to a write and record. You know, to sit here and dwell on the, on the court proceedings doesn't do anybody any good. Right. It's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's just, it's just crazy, you know, when you get, when you're yeah, a fan and, it's and you're... Boring and it's uh, and it's not a fun thing to go and dwell on. Now, now you guys get out of that. Now, where where do you go from there? You start playing again. Uh, you you know you're known in Detroit. It's are, are you you're coming back for your career? It must be a good feeling that you got to get back and start playing together. Well, you know what the whole thing was. Even during the court uh, 
proceedings and litigations and stuff, we were still, we were still able, with the help, and God bless them, with a booking agency, at that point we were able, you know, to go and do shows, and there was still the calling for us, people, you know, a, a lot of venues and, and promoters on the country didn't, they don't give a shit that you're in the, you know, in litigation and that, you know, they were still riding on the popularity, you know, hoping that with, by adding us to certain shows, whatever, we could help draw people. And so we did keep on playing, we did keep on writing, and we did keep on doing demos, <clears throat> but this was without the help of a major record label. So we did it on our own. It's not like we just, you know, put our guitars down and just stopped. That never happened. Right. You know, so we uh, kept plugging away. You pick up the pieces, just like in any, you know, any relationship or anything that goes sour. Sometimes you just gotta, you know, you drop it, pick the pieces up, and okay, let's go. Now, now you mentioned earlier you opened for the Cars, and I know Clem yeah. Burke was in your band. Is that how you yeah. guys got to know each other and come up with the Empty Hearts? idea was the empty hearts was it just something that you you guys you know the romantics are still going especially now with the revival of the uh, 80s scene people are loving it i know you just did a cruise i know you guys play a lot of gigs with the romantics but the empty hearts who i whose idea was it and how did you get i mean for you guys are all you know you're a super group i mean you know if you look it up if you look on wikipedia it describes you guys as a super group how did how did how did it come about I remember I was, well, I'll, I'll have to put a little plug in here for um, um, for a guy who's not that well known around you know around the world or anything. But I was uh, I got called to do a little stretch of uh, a couple of years uh, being in in uh, in Ringo Starr's All Star Band. So as I was doing that. Um, and I've always been in touch with um, uh, the one person we haven't talked about, you know, from the Empty Hearts, Andy Babuke, right? Right. And and Andy, uh, for anybody out there, if you're a fan of the Beatles or Stones, he's written two fantastic books. He's written more than that, but the two that'll guide you to him automatically, and one on uh, on uh, all his book on Bigsby too. Oh, Jesus. You know, he's going to yell at me when he hears this. But anyways, he's uh, done books on um, Beatles gear. 
okay, which will give you an inside look on everything you want to know from when the Beatles, you know, did their first recordings, what amps they used, what instruments, you know, they used, which guitars they used. Very thorough, very thorough books. And the same thing with the Rolling Stones. Spent plenty of time on it. I don't even know how much, um, you know, total, but it doesn't matter. At any rate, he had an idea. He wanted to give, you know, give it a shot by let's just get back to basics and me, you know, and we've always talked about either writing together or doing something together, mainly because me and him are both come from the same background. Um, you know, we can, our second language is Ukrainian. Okay, so when we've always been friends. I've known Andy since his days with the Chesterfield Kings, and um, and we've always stayed in contact. And it was, uh, you know, joking together, friendship and whatnot. But he's just a great guy, um, and talent too. Very talented person. And so I said, Well, how are you going to do this? Because when you, you know, we'll get a band together. I go, yeah, who else? And he started naming. He goes, well, you know Clem. I go, yeah, I know Clem. And he goes, well, I kind of know him too. I go, okay, we can, you know, we'll see what happens. He's, I'm a blondie. How are you going to get him to do it? You know what he goes, okay, well, well, we'll approach him. And I go, who are you going to get for guitar? And he goes, well, I know Elliot Easton really well. I go, well, fat chance there. He ain't going to get him. <laughs> I go, can I swear on the... Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. I go, not a fucking chance. No way. <laughs> and so anyway, so he called him, and they've got this thing. They, you know, they know comic books, horror movies, science fiction, all this shit they talk about. <laughs> At any rate, you know, that, that's, that comes to be Three Stooges stuff, you know, stupid stuff like that. It comes... It comes to be a common denominator between, you know, the four guys like that. So, and um, like I said, my relationship with Clem made things even easier, too. So uh, we got together, you know, got everybody on the phone. They all agreed to at least try it. And then we started to write songs and we recorded the first album at Andy's studio in Rochester, New York. And um, and we just got done recording tracks for for a follow up to that, <clears throat> and we're still working on that and finishing that up too. Then we you know dragged in Ed Stasium, you know to do sit behind the boards. Who he had worked with everybody. He's he's worked with Andy uh, with the Chesterfield Kings. Um, he's worked on some sessions with Elliot. Um, and and with Clem, and uh, the only guy he didn't work with was myself. And you know, Ed's done Ramones, Smithereens, Mick Jagger, even engineered Gladys Knight and the Pips. And I never knew that. Midnight Train to Georgia, how about that? That's crazy. That's <laughs> been around for a long time, yeah. and we somehow we conned him into it. To this day, I have no idea how. But um, he agreed to come along for the ride, and you know, uh, we just gave it a whirl. You know, you you give it a good, honest shot. If you're not gonna, if you pull all those guys together with that much background, you know, two guys that are in a rock and roll hall of fame, anyways, you know, I go, 
If you do that, you better give it an honest shot, and you better give it a good one. You know, so so we did. It's just that our live performances, have, we haven't done all that many, you know, for whatever reason. And then um, we, we did that, put out a Christmas single, uh, not last year, but the year before. I did, a, you know, a couple of television appearances and whatever, and uh, now we're working on this new release. So we'll see what happens. Now... Is it? I'm guessing it's easier these days than it was years ago because you guys all live in different places. Because of the internet, it's probably much easier to write and get the songs together. Um, no, it's well, uh, you can work on any on on songs yourself. You know, you can get an idea. You can transport ideas back and forth as simple as from phone. On your phone, you can send stuff real, real quick. So you can work on it by yourself. But you know, I found out that the more I went out to, uh, the more me and Andy got uh, got together to uh, flesh out. You know, because he had ideas, I had ideas, Elliot had ideas, even Clem had ideas too. Uh, He's always got them. <laughs> but you know, uh, the more I got, uh, uh, the more I got together with um, uh, with Andy to flesh these ideas out, the you know the better they were, uh, the better things work out. But um, yeah, I mean, with the use of come on, we all used to have to have our tape recorders and carry those with us, and people still do. But there's uh, there's other means of recording now, so. It's come a long way. Now, you're with it at the horse. Now you guys are recording new tracks. But all of a sudden, in the last few years, as I said earlier, the 80s resurged. So you have a whole new yeah. crowd for the romantics. Were you expecting this 80s resurgence? Because I love the 80s, and it's just amazing that, you know, kids, 18-year-old, 19-year-olds love it. You know, what is that like for you? Because as we said... What I like about you has been around for years, and now you have a whole brand new audience that probably assures it's going to be for around for twenty more years because those people have kids. What is that like when you look back? You must be like, "Holy shit!" You know, this song is going to last longer than uh, longer than a ton of longer than a lot of stuff. Well, you know what, Steve? Listen, and you're absolutely you're one hundred percent correct on that. The only thing I can tell you about the 80s is that people still love, you know, that decade. They love that genre. They love the music. If you think about it, those, the, the guys from those bands that were out in the 80s and that, they're children of the 60s, right? They, they just, they listen to all that stuff as they were growing up, 60s and, you know, early 70s and that. So... And that's, in my opinion, there was no better, in, in, in my humble opinion, there was no better time to grow up. I wouldn't change it for the world. Okay, so all those influences rolled into one that we talked about at the beginning of the interview, coming out, <clears throat> and it shows in your music. And there's a lot of sing-along stuff. There's, you know, great choruses. There's just really good songs from that era. And I think, pe- and, and that's why they stick with people. And like, you know, I'm not saying that there's not those kind of songs in the 90s or in the 2000s because um, I'm sure there are two, you know, people who relate to those decades. 
Um, but now you have, you know, fans of ours that have lasted for the last 20, 30 years, and their kids get turned on to that music too. You know, and their kids like it a lot. So when, so when we come to shows now, you know, you, I'll just tell some of us we're doing those shows with opening for Rick Springfield and you know Loverboy. You see, you know, parents out there of different ages and stuff. And you see their kids out there all dancing around and stuff. They know the songs. It, it's uh, it's just crazy, but it's great though. Now, and you know what else is good? It's I mean, it's good. You find you have to look for this music sometimes because of uh, the way radio is nowadays. But the way things are now, it makes these bands come out um, because for a musician is not it's uh, it's not an easy life. I mean, you know, you don't get stuff paid for for you know for all these bands that are out now. You know, it seems like wow. These guys are still around. Every, see, like everybody's out, but everybody has a story to tell, every, and everybody's working. And it's good to see it's a very vibrant music scene now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a scene's different, but it's great because I love, I mean, I, I went to an 80s concert here in Philly, and a bunch of the past guests of mine have been, were there. You know, it was uh, Gene Loves Jezebel, it was Flock of Seagulls, it was uh, sure. a thing. And when you go to those concerts, it's hits and everyone knows them and it's one of those things where everyone's just enjoying themselves because i think also the 80s well for you know at least for me i was in college in the early 80s and graduated high school in 82 and it was just a time where like everybody had fun nobody was uptight and that just was great you know we didn't have the internet to worry about you know going crazy and taking your shirt off at a party you know it's not going to go all over the internet, you know, but now it's changed. But the eighties were such a great time. And I think the music really complemented that. Oh yeah. 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 It's uh, and it's working and it's branching out into different things. Like I think you mentioned before, Steve, uh, even like, you know, who would have thought about playing on cruise ships, right? What are you kidding me? Right. If you would have told me 30 years ago, oh yeah, you're going to be playing on a cruise ship. That's fuck off. Not a chance. And, but we're doing it and we're having fun doing it. Pardon my language, by the way. That's fine. No, but I'm thinking the cruise ship, though, is great because you have the audience and it's everyone that appreciates you. You don't have some jackass going, oh, who's this band? Everyone knows you. That's why they book the cruise. They book a cruise to see music. And, or, or, or this other thing, too, where, where, um, these people that I know that, uh, that have taken that idea, and they said, well, they're on a cruise ship. Why don't we take a, put everybody on a cruise ship, take it to an island um, in the Dominican Republic, and take the cruise ship, tip it on its side, tip everybody off, put them on, at a resort on the island for a week, and then we'll have all the bands play there. Yeah, I mean, that's the... And, and that's happening, and it's great. I know someone who went to that. Yeah, it's 80s in the sand. Yeah, it's, something called, uh, it's something called 80s in the sand. And, and um, so you, people can look that up. And if you're interested, it's been going on now for a couple of years. And it's a great event. And we've been expanding that, uh, taking this out to uh, Las Vegas coming up at the beginning of May, doing 80s in the desert. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you're eight. You are what you are. I mean, I'm not going to deny that we, you know, that's the era that we're from, right? 
Exactly. Not to be ashamed of it all. Now, As a matter of fact, we're very proud of it. Oh, you should be. I mean, it's just now. Is sure. it now? How is it for you guys now when you play? What I like about you, because you've played it. I mean, I don't know, ten thousand times in your careers. Does it still? Do you get chills a little bit sometimes when you see the crowd like totally digging it after all this time? Well, you know what? I mean, you, you always get hyped up about that end of it too, where you know people really appreciate it. They hear the opening chords and they're just going nuts and stuff. But you know what else is really cool though, is that you we're taking this. That's 1980, right? And then there's this band called, for instance, uh, Five Seconds of Summer, right? This Australian band from a couple of years ago. They, and they re-record what I like about you, right? And it does well for them, too. They're just getting a lot of airplay. And they're just like five young Australian, you know, boys, and they, and they play guitars, and they sing, and it's, and it's great. I love it. Well, it's a great song. You know, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time today, Wally. Um, now, the website is romanticsdetroit.com, and the Empty Hearts site is theemptyhearts.com. Now, do you have a, uh, a targeted time for these new songs to come out in a new album, or are you, are you guys just putting it together now for the Empty Hearts? <laughs> that are, some are available there will be more available coming up I believe within the next few months too so you have to be patient and keep an open ear and I guess I too you know on the, I think so you know for that to come out the, uh, the empty hearts there will be something there will at least be a single or two singles out before the end of the year okay well that's awesome so people Go check out Wally. Check out the romantics. Go on YouTube. You check out the videos. They're great videos, you know. Or you know, I sometimes if you have Amazon Music, just say the romantics, and they'll just play random romantic songs. You can hear all their different sounds, and they're a great band. And so people go to those websites, check them out, keep following the '80s. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 700 episodes. You can email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I'll always get back to you. Or follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and talk to you next week.